Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanize podcast. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite topics, sleep. We spend about one third of our lives sleeping. And for many of us, me included, sleep is one of life's greatest pleasures. For others, falling and staying asleep and sleeping well is a constant battle. But what is sleep exactly and why must we do it every night? Answering these questions are some of the biggest and most fascinating challenges biologists face today. What we do know is that sleep is as essential to our life and well-being as food and water. Sleep is the time when our body repairs itself. Sleep, or the lack of it, affects every aspect of our lives, from immunity to hormones to our mood and cognitive function. A lack of sleep makes us vulnerable to many chronic medical issues and affects us not only as individuals, but as a society. Consider the impact of car accidents or disasters, such as the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Knowing about sleep and how to optimize it could literally save your life or that of someone you love. My guest today is an authority on the neurobiology of sleep and circadian rhythms. Dr. Craig Heller is an award-winning professor of biology and researcher at Stanford University and has been studying why we sleep and the ways that sleep can support physical performance. Dr. Heller will share with us his hypothesis about the purpose of sleep, some of his key insights about how the clock in our brain works, and how to harness the power of sleep. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dr. Heller, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. This should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. And I think what's really important to say is that, as already mentioned before, you are a man of so many accomplishments and so many different areas. The area we're going to focus on today, though, is sleep. We spend an incredible amount of time in our lives sleeping, about one-third. So what is sleep? Is there an answer to that question? There is not. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. We spend one-third of our lives sleeping, and we don't know why. Yes. (laughs) But we have ideas, and there's lots of research that's ongoing testing those ideas. And it may well be that there is more than one function of sleep. We're forced to consider that because in the last few years, it's become accepted that sleep is a common phenomenon in the animal world. Not only 10 or 12 years ago, it was considered to be strictly a mammalian and avian phenomenon, mammals and birds. But now the next thing that came along were fruit flies. And now we see people trying to define what looks like sleep in all sorts of organisms. That's fascinating. And do all these different organisms actually have the same need to sleep as we humans do? That's one of the tests. If you keep them awake, do they have a sleep rebound? And that is essentially what is used to say, yes, this rest state in this organism appears to be sleep. But Because we don't know the function of sleep in us, it's hard to then see what the homology is in the other organisms. Does it serve the same function? So I frequently say one of the functions that historically has been associated with sleep are Freudian functions. But yet, especially with REM sleep and dreaming sleep, but yet 
all mammals have the same proportion of REM sleep in relation to non-REM sleep. So does a cow have Freudian problems? <laughs> or a mouse? I, I don't think so. So I think that rules out resolution of Freudian problems as being a function of sleep. I'm personally more of a Carl Gustav Jung kind of woman, but nevertheless, um, certainly Jung's analysis of dreams also likely do not apply to mice. <laughs> However, what you've just said, it's so interesting. Sleep is so, such a fascinating topic. We spend so much time sleeping, yet we know so little. And sleep has fascinated humanity since ancient times, but the study of sleep is actually quite new. Can you give us a quick overview of the history of the study of sleep, please? I would say it probably begins back in maybe the 1950s. And at that time was a lab interested in sleep at University of Chicago, the lab of Nathaniel Kleitman. And he had some medical students that were working with him and wanted to do research And at that time, the actual recording of sleep was new using the EEG. The EEG was a tool that was developed maybe 20 years before that, I don't know the exact date, which made it possible to characterize changes in brain activity as a function of sleep. And using those techniques, these medical students discovered REM sleep. They discovered that now and then sleep was interrupted by a state in which the EEG changed. It was more like wakefulness and the eyes were darting back and forth beneath the eyelids, which I'm sure you've seen in your Yorkshire Terrier when it's sleeping. <laughs> Every now and then its eyes will be rapidly moving from side to side. And that's the definition of rapid eye movement sleep. So from that time, it's about the difference between non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is about 80% of our sleep time, and rapid eye movement sleep have been focused on by researchers and lots of hypotheses and theories and so forth. And you just mentioned it before, we still really don't know what the function of sleep is. However, I would love to hear about your hypothesis for the purpose of sleep. Could you expound on that? There are a number of hypotheses, and the one that I favor is that sleep is essential for memory consolidation. Mm -hmm. What happens during the day is we experience things, and the experience, which we call, gets stored in short-term memory, and we call this declarative memory because it's things we can describe verbally. That's in contrast to procedural memory, like riding a bike or playing a violin. So what happens when we're awake is these information that is going to be consolidated into declarative memory is stored in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And then during sleep, that information is transferred to the cortex. So I think what sleep is necessary for is to promote this consolidation of the information in short-term memory sorting it out as to what's relevant, what's less relevant, and putting the relevant information into long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense since we don't seem to be doing that, at least not in a way that we're aware of while we're awake. When we go to sleep, our brain seems to go offline, right? Which, of course, now when well, we're... It's actually more correct to say the body goes offline ah. uh -huh. <laughs> because the brain is actually active during sleep. The brain is doing things during sleep and the rest of the body is passive. Now in non-REM sleep, you do have movements. You move in bed. You actually, people move quite a bit during sleep without realizing it. But during REM sleep, you are totally paralyzed. There is inhibition to your skeletal muscles so that you cannot move. And the idea is, the hypothesis is, this prevents us from acting out our dreams. And there are conditions called REM behavioral disorders in which individuals do 
get active. They may get up and they may, this is not sleepwalking. This is different from sleepwalking, which is in non-REM sleep, but they may do something violent. I had a teaching assistant once who, she's now a medical physician, but when she was a student and she working in the lab, she had a REM behavior disorder. And one night she was dreaming that she was being chased by a giant cockroach and she got up and started running on her bed and fell into the bureau in the room and broke her back. So yeah, REM behavior disorder, which is the premature relaxation of that muscle inhibition, can be quite dangerous. And there's quite a few fascinating sleep disorders. I'd also like to talk about that in just a few minutes. Before we go into those, I mean, something that most people are learning about now, because sleep is such a huge topic. So many people are struggling with not enough sleep or sleep that's not a good quality interrupted or even sleep disorders. So a lot of more people that are trying to understand how sleep works, our circadian rhythms, of course, this clock in our brain and how that controls every aspect of our physiology and behavior. Can you give us the rundown on circadian rhythms and what are the essential characteristics of them and how, what happens when we work against our inner clock? Yes. Circadian rhythms are uh, an aspect of our lives that pervades everything we do physiologically, behaviorally. And as you said, it's due to a very small group of cells, which is in the base of the brain. And if you follow your optic nerves, the optic nerves come together and cross and go to opposite sides of the brain. And just above where they cross are these two little groups of cells, and therefore they're called the suprachiasmatic nuclei. So chiasmatic means the chiasm, the optic chiasm, the, where the optic nerves cross. And if this part of the brain is damaged, we can become arrhythmic. And that means we have no daily rhythms. This is, would be unlikely to occur in a human, but in animals, it's done experimentally to remove that part of the brain. And then the animals are just as likely to sleep, eat, drink at any time of the day. There's no diurnal organization of what they do. Now, with the suprachiasmatic nucleus intact, if we have no outside information, no light cycle, for example, if we're stuck in a basement, our free run, our circadian rhythm free runs. It has a period which is about a day. And that's why it's called circadian, circa for about and dias a day. If you, for example, are at the research station in Antarctica, <laughs> you are likely to have a, in the Antarctic winter, you're likely to free run. Your clock will be running at a different than 24 hours. But for us, every day, our clock gets reset by when we see light. That's the most important information that keeps our clocks tuned to 24 hours. Social inputs also play a role. Exercise plays a role. So one of the, if you are trying to get over jet lag, which is when your clock is trying to run at home time and you are in a different time zone and that upsets the temporal organization of our physiology, of our eating, our digesting, our sleeping and waking and so forth. But if you are trying to get over jet lag, the best thing you can do is get up in the morning and get exposed to bright light and exercise. <laughs> so that'll help bring your clock into sync with the new time zone. Yes. And light is such an important aspect, as you have just mentioned, the effects of our modern lifestyles, of course, where first of all, we're not really exposed to natural sunlight, especially not at sunrise where it might hit our eyes and cause for certain reactions in our body. And then being exposed to these unnatural lights, blue lights all of the time, that is not very good for our natural circadian rhythms. And, right. and once these our rhythm is disrupted and even severely disrupted, what can we do to actually get it straight again? As I said, it's being exposed to bright light in the early morning. That is 
one of the most effective ways of resetting your clock. So, if, for example, if you travel uh, across the Atlantic, let's say you leave the United States sometime in the late afternoon, early evening, you arrive in Europe early the next morning. Okay, but that's European time, and what that is in your home time late is late evening. Okay, so. If you see light in the late evening, you mentioned blue light. What light in the evening does is it phase delays your rhythm, so you're less likely to go to sleep. What you want to do when you get in Europe, you want to phase advance your rhythm to come up to local time. But if you see light when you get off the plane in the early morning, when it's evening at home, it's going to do the opposite, so it becomes harder. So wear dark glasses when you get off the plane until about noon. <laughs> wow, I will try. That's a. I will try that. Yes. What and what is the difference in in our bodies by delaying the seeing this light by a few hours? That what is different is the effect of the light on the clock. So if you see light in the evening, that phase delays the clock. If you see light in the early morning, it phase advances the clock. By when you see light determines how your watch here in your brain, the clock in your brain gets uh, adjusted. Got it. So it's more advantageous to actually be exposed to the light when I land in Europe, let's say by noon versus early in the morning, because it'll delay. Understood. Yeah. So um, when it's late night home time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because <laughs> that's the rhythm your clock is on. Yes. That makes total sense, Dr. Heller. Thank you for explaining that. And once I am extremely sensitive to lack of sleep or having bad sleep, I will literally not get behind the wheels of my car, behind the steering wheel of my car when I haven't slept enough because I'm keenly aware how the capacity to function is affected for me. Also, just a night of terrible sleep, no sleep at all, flying to Europe or taking a red eye here across the US, mm-hmm. I know it impacts my immune system. I've noticed I'm much more likely to pick up something, get sick after not sleeping well. How does a lack of sleep impact our cognitive abilities and other bodily functions? As I said, what sleep does for cognitive function is to consolidate information into long-term memory. And by consolidation, it's not just putting each memory in its own little file folder, it's integrating it, the information that you already have. So you could say that this process during sleep is critical for innovation, for discovery, for making new connections that you hadn't realized before. So if you your sleep is disrupted, that consolidation process gets disrupted. And then the next day, you're not going to perform as well. So if you're trying to learn some, let's say a procedural memory, which is easy, easier to think about. A procedural memory is, let's say, playing a piano. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can practice in the evening, you can practice in the morning, and you can then practice in the evening, be about the same. But if you have a good night's sleep early the next morning, you'll be better. So that's the shows the benefit of sleep in in a procedural memory in consolidating the information. Yes, and so there's up there's this benefit that we get from sleeping well, and there's also a certain price we pay, not only as individuals when it comes to lack of sleep, but also as a society. I remember in you have an outstanding course on sleep science that's available online, and if I remember correctly, you were actually also talked about major disasters such as the Exxon Valdez oil spill and how that's related to lack of sleep. Could you talk about that a little bit? In a 24-hour society, there are people who are functioning at times when their internal clocks say they should be sleeping. Now, you might think that you can sleep any time of the day, but you can't. It's interesting. We have a test that's used in human clinical sleep labs called the the multiple sleep latency test. So you take someone and you put them in bed at different times of the day. And you might think that at 10 o'clock in the morning, you're 
put in bed, you're not going to fall asleep, but you will. It might take about 20, 25 minutes, but around noontime or early afternoon, it may take only 10 minutes. You can see that as you have been awake longer and longer, the latency to sleep is less. So you can think of a pressure building up, a sleep pressure building up that has to be discharged. But then what happens in the late afternoon? You go to bed then, it's harder to fall asleep. And that's the clock, the circadian clock, which is pushing back against the sleep pressure. So the circadian clock is maintaining wakefulness. Even though you have been awake for a long time and you've accumulated a need for sleep, but the circadian clock is an arousal mechanism that keeps you from falling asleep in the early, mid to evening. But then all of a sudden, the clock shuts off and boom, the sleep pressure is there and you can't stay awake. That's fascinating. So, I was not aware of that. So people think that you get sleepy around noontime because it's the effect of eating lunch. No, because it happens whether you eat lunch or you don't eat lunch. And ideally, most of us get to sleep at a time that works best for our circadian rhythms. You just mentioned that. Is there for blanket all of humanity an ideal time to rise and be awake and then go to sleep? Or are there people who have very different rhythms and who actually benefit from staying up throughout the night and going to bed when the sun rises? Or does that have a negative impact cumulatively over time? It is true that there's diversity. There, there are people who are owls and there are people who are larks. And we now know that there's actually a genetic basis for that. So there are certain genes that will favor you being an owl and others that favor you being a lark. And also there is a, and that's not a disorder, that's quite normal, but there's also a disorder which is called either phase advanced disorder or phase delay disorder in which, so for example, someone might go to bed later and later every night and finally go right around the clock. And that's obviously dysfunctional. So one challenge is to find ways to actually entrain those people to get the clock back on a regular schedule. One of the situations that causes a dysfunctional clock is, of course, blindness, because we take information from our eyes to the clock. There are direct pathways from the eyes to the clock, apart from pathways to the visual cortex. Okay? And in individuals who, many individuals who are blind, they lack that light input and therefore they will tend to free run. Mm -hmm. So their rhythms will just have period of 23 hours or 25 hours or something in between. One of the things that's important for individuals who are blind is to wear dark glasses when they go out, because if their pupils are dilated, then they will be subjected to the UV light that's in the daylight spectrum and damage the cells in the retina that are responsible for communicating the light information to the clock. They may be visually blind, but they're still sensitive to light for circadian functions. That is fascinating. I had no idea. Now, the other thing that you have to keep in mind for the 24-hour cycle or the 24-hour society, which we have now, is that it is easier to shift the clock going in one direction than going in the other direction. So it's really important for shift work changes to follow the best pattern for enabling the people when they're change shift to still be able to get sleep. So it's still a difficult proposition. And people that have been involved in these natural disasters you mentioned, and the one that is in the news these days, of course, is Chernobyl. We're reminded of that. And these are events that happen when people are not functioning up to their normal capacity because they are 
sleep deprived or their brain is trying to sleep. And what tools or practices are there that could help someone adapt to shift work? Certainly be paying attention to exposure to light. So that let's say you're on the night shift, okay, and you you are then leaving the, you are leaving work at the early morning, and you now want to be able to sleep. But what's going to happen is that bright light when you leave work is going to, because let's see, <laughs> I have to get this straight. <laughs> it's going to push your clock with a phase delay so, so that you will be, it'd be harder to stay awake. So protect- oh, no, it'd be harder. Yeah. It'd be harder to sleep. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got that a little bit mi- mixed up. <laughs> that makes me feel very good, but not good, but in a sense, it relieves me because these are such complex things that you've been dealing with. And so graciously been explaining to us so that we can actually also grasp them. So even if the master of sleep science <laughs> can sometimes mix it up, that certainly is good for a neophyte to keep challenging myself to learn about it. We've actually developed a technology that possibly can help people shift their biological clocks when they travel or when they're on shift work. And what we found is that very short, bright flashes of light are sufficient to reset the clock. Uh So millisecond flashes of light. So we've developed a technology which can deliver these bright flashes of light at the right time, at the right time of day so that they adjust the clock in the correct direction. Please tell us more about this technology. What is it called? How is it applied? And can it, for example, also be applied to people who have insomnia or just completely messed up circadian rhythms and who would like to change that and go back to sleep at a, quote, normal time of the evening? We hope it will. Essentially, what it is doing is it's delivering light at the time that the clock is most sensitive to be shifted in the proper direction. This may be, for example, if you travel many time zones, the correct time to apply the light would be when you're sleeping. So a device which can flash light that penetrates the eyelids makes it possible to get the benefit of that light-induced phase shift even though you're not conscious that it's happening. So this is in development now. A group of students have formed a company to develop this into a product, which might be glasses, for example, or light masks that you could wear when you go to sleep or you're on the plane. So I don't know what form it's in right now, but they will be coming out with it soon. That that sounds incredibly exciting. Like it could be such an amazing tool for so many people. Whether to adapt within their lifestyles to different time zones and circumstances or people who've just had trouble falling asleep at certain times. Well, right now, the standard technology which is used for syncing people is long bright light exposure. So there are banks of lights and people, for example, in the northern countries suffer from a seasonal affective disorder. And that's tied with the tied up with the circadian rhythm. And the treatment is to have banks of bright lights, and they may sit for half an hour in front of the banks of bright lights early in the morning, and that will have a beneficial effect. But if we can just change that to 100 milliseconds of light, <laughs> delivered one flash every minute for five minutes or 10 minutes, that will... I think, uh, make it much easier to deal with the circadian dysfunction of either long nights or jet lag. But you mentioned insomnia. Insomnia is a very common problem that people have. And there are, of course, many drugs. I think the healthy thing is that more and more people are avoiding the drugs and instead using behavioral therapies, cognitive behavioral therapies for promoting sleep and improving their sleep hygiene. 
And that's really important. First of all, it's important to realize that not everybody needs the same amount of sleep. For some people, six hours a night is enough. Other people need nine hours a night. So many people are worrying about their sleep when actually they may be getting perfectly normal amounts of sleep. So the one way, the simplest way to test for that is if you're on a date, if you're on a weekly schedule of working and you feel you have short sleep, you're not sleeping enough, what happens on the weekend? So if you sleep in on the weekend, that means, yes, you're not getting enough sleep during the week. But if on the weekend you get up at the same time, it means you've been having adequate sleep all week long. So one of the biggest causes of insomnia is people worrying about not being able to sleep. So they'll go to bed and they'll think that they should fall asleep in 10 minutes. Maybe for them, 20 minutes is normal. So after 10 minutes, they start worrying. I'm not falling asleep. I'm not falling asleep. I'm not falling asleep. And then that keeps them awake. <laughs> so you, what cognitive behavioral therapy does is that it calms people down. It give, gives the brain something else to do other than worry about sleep. Because so, that would just perpetuate the problem. This fear right. of not being able to sleep will keep you from sleeping and it'll become worse and worse. There is also a difference right between primary and secondary insomnias. Can you clarify that for us, please, Dr. Heller? A primary insomnia is physiological, okay? Whereas a secondary insomnia is the result of stress or the result of events in your life that have you upset or concerned. So cognitive behavioral therapy is very useful in dealing with insomnia. And it is so good to avoid the drugs because a lot of the sleep-inducing medications do so in a way that you can become acclimated to it. And therefore, you have to use more, and you have to use more, and you have to use more. And that's really a vicious circle to get into, to become dependent on sleep-promoting drugs. Yes. I would be curious your take on, let's say, drugs on the one side. What about supplements such as melatonin or maybe certain herbal extracts? I think that one of the problems when you get into supplements and herbal medicines is that you're dependent on essentially accumulated experience that is not necessarily scientifically verified. But if it works... So certainly having a cup of warm tea, a chamomile tea in the evening is something people accept as being sleep promoting. Now, is it sleep promoting physiologically or is it just relaxing you so that you're more likely to sleep? And I'd say it doesn't matter if it works. <laughs> But it's interesting because one of the drugs I, I, that I do research on Down syndrome and learning and memory and Down syndrome. And one of the drugs that we have found improves cognition in individuals, not individuals, but I'm talking about mouse models now, but it's hopefully it extends to humans, is a nutraceutical, something that you can buy in the health food store called Ginkgo Biloba. Ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba. Uh -huh. yep. And the active one of the active ingredients in ginkgo biloba is the drug that we use in our research to show that we can improve learning and memory in the animal models of Down syndrome. And there are people who have used it now and report, yes, they, have, they see in their children big benefits, but there has never been a study. So a doctor cannot prescribe ginkgo biloba or the active ingredient bilobalide because it's not an approved FDA authorized medication. It's something that has been used in, 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 in Chinese culture for thousands of years, supposedly for Alzheimer's <laughs> or for improving memory. So there are a lot of good things that can come from supplements, and we might not necessarily know 
why? Or we may not know the physiological basis, but what we're depending upon is depending upon the experience of thousands of people over the hundreds of years. Yes, or even millennia, like yeah. what you just mentioned, traditional Chinese medicine. And with regard to the ginkgo biloba, so it has a, a good effect on the memory formation, memory. How about, how does it affect sleep or sleep patterns? That I don't know. We have never investigated that. What we found in our research on Down syndrome is that there are not major abnormalities apparently in sleep. I don't think we have enough information to answer the question. You can imagine for, a, for doing research on individuals with cognitive dysfunction, you can't just bring them into a lab and hook them up with all sorts of electrodes and so forth. So there's a lack of real information on, on humans with this condition. But uh, yeah. I can't, I, I just don't have any reliable information to tell you. I hope there will be more information coming forth from people like yourself via studies in the near future. I'd love to stay posted on that. There's so many truly mind-boggling and fascinating things about sleep. One thing that's just always caught my attention is also the Parent sleep changes that can occur over the lifespan of a person. We have a saying to sleep like a baby. Uh, I remember as a teenager, I just loathed getting up early for school or how come for some older people, it's very easy to have a nice nap during daytime, but then they have difficulty to sleep at nighttime versus the afternoon. How is there a biological basis for these sleep changes? that can occur during our lives at different stages of our life? Yeah, yes, there are. First of all, sleep is very important in development. So this is when neurons are making connections where your muscles are getting hooked up to the neurons in your brain. And it's hypothesized now, and there's pretty good evidence that sleep is critical for these activities to, to occur. One of the interesting things is that Sleep, of course, is present even before birth. It's, it, you're born with, <laughs> with the ability to sleep, but you're not born necessarily with the circadian organization of sleep. Young children up to maybe three, four months old are more likely to be sleeping at any time of the day. And then gradually the circadian clock matures and begins to organize the sleep. But still the individual, the infant needs more and therefore is going to be sleeping at multiple times a day, not just all of a sudden go to eight hours of sleep and 16 hours of wake as the adult. But the total amount of sleep is higher in the young children. And when you say sleep like a baby, that's literally true because You don't find little kids having trouble going to sleep. They may not want to go to sleep, but when they get in bed, boom, they're out. <laughs> they're not wondering why they can't sleep. <laughs> but the one thing that you mentioned about at around adolescence, there is a definite shift in the biological phasing of sleep. And it's actually physiological that an adolescent will not sleep as early as they did a couple years ago and they'll want to stay they'll want to sleep later in the morning and this has caused in many places in our country a change in school start times it used to be that they'd send the big kids to school first and then the buses would be recycled to take the little kids to school and it's exactly the wrong thing The little kids can be alert and bright and cheery early on uh, when the adolescents are still mm, mm -hmm. not wanting to be up. So actually changes in school start times have been a major movement around the country. One of the problems is you are in older individuals can be less active. And if you're less active, you're sitting around more, more likely to doze off. And therefore, you're dissipating your sleep pressure during the day. 
And so you go to bed and you can't sleep. Well, it's no wonder you don't have to sleep. <laughs> You've already slept a lot during the day. The other thing which is characteristic frequently of elderly is obstructive sleep apnea, especially individuals who are overweight. And what happens is during sleep, the airways actually collapse and therefore you can't breathe. It's not a sleep apnea. You can't breathe and you wake up. Now, you may not know you woke up. The next morning, you may say, oh, I had a perfect night's sleep, but I'm so tired during the day. If you actually record the sleep of that person, they may have woken up 200 or 300 times during the night. And what this is doing is totally fragmenting sleep. And those functions that we were talking about, the cognitive functions, they get disrupted. So there's cognitive deficit following. But these people will come into the sleep clinic not because they're having trouble sleeping. They'll come into the sleep clinic because they'll complain about daytime sleepiness. And then you find out that (laughs) they're just having this fragmented sleep pattern because every time their airways collapse and they snore, (laughs) their airways collapse. Eventually their blood oxygen level will drop and CO2 level will go up and it'll arouse them. And, uh, but just short period of time, a short arousal uh, that'll relieve the blockage and they go back to sleep. And then once again, snore. 200 to 300 times a night. That's a massive amount of disruptions. And I can just, I can't even begin to imagine the cascading of side effects from that for cognitive functioning, for the body, for the immune system. So that sounds quite intimidating, actually, if you think about all all over health. One of the one of the curious movements which is going on these days is people worrying about the effect of temperature on sleep. And what we see is we see all sorts of one of the biggest questions that always comes up is what is the best temperature for sleeping? What is the best temperature for the hotel room or the bedroom? And the answer is it depends. It depends on what insulation you have, your blankets, your pajamas, but it the dependency changes throughout the night. So when you go to bed, your brain thermostat is set downward. Whereas you may feel chilly when you go to bed and you pull on lots of covers, you go to sleep and that set point goes down and all of a sudden you're heat, you're hot. Okay. So one of the arguments for cooler sleeping environments is that it's very easy to, in a cooler environment, to dissipate that heat, to lose that heat. When you go to Europe and you're there in the summer, you still get these big down comforters. (laughs) So what do you do? You stick your hands out, you stick your feet out, and that's how you lose heat. And if you're in a warm environment, that doesn't work. So in the warm environment, it's harder to make this thermoregulatory change that is necessary for good, deep sleep. Oh, yes. And I'm one of these people. I find myself, I wake up multiple times a night, probably because I'm either too cold or too hot. And my entire bedding is flying around me. I generally sleep pretty well, though. So something like adjusting to temperature changes throughout the night and waking up like I tend to do as affect sleep for sure. But it seems to be pretty benign all overall when I, for example, compare it to what people are dealing with who are suffering from PTSD and night terrors. And I have heard you talk about prior, when I researched you, that there are behavioral methods that can help conquer these bouts of insomnia that are also tied to PTSD and these night terrors. Can you talk a little bit about that, please, Dr. Heller? Yes, SD is strictly associated with nightmares. And you find that individuals with PTSD tend to sleep less and less. And the main reason is they don't want to have the nightmares. That's when they have the panic attacks. And one of the therapies that's used now for PTSD is to, in the therapist's office, to recall the traumatic event in a comfortable environment. 
eventually by this reiteration, this recall of the event uh, in various sessions, you become less sensitive to it. So that is a behavioral therapy. But the problem with that therapy is that it's context dependent. It's associated with the environment of the therapy of the therapist. So that when that individual is out in the real world, going through other aspects of life, it may reoccur. Something may trigger that panic attack again. So one of the things that we have tried to promote, we don't work, I don't work on humans, but we try to promote a technique which would be context independent. So what we did with animals is we can essentially use a conditioned fear. So we can produce in the animal a conditioned fear that whenever it hears a tone, it gets a foot shock. Okay, or whenever it gets a particular smell, it gets a foot shock. And then during sleep, we can replay that tone or reintroduce that smell. And what it does is it amplifies the fear response. Now we can do the opposite. What if we introduce something that reduces the fear response during wake and we associate it with a stimulus such as a sound or a smell, then in sleep, that's a context independent environment. If you can then reintroduce that smell or that sound, music, let's say, and it's associated with the safe environment, then that can enhance the benefit of the therapy in a way that's not dependent on the context. So basically what you're saying, Dr. Heller, is to, for example, when you do therapy and work on these traumatic experiences that cause the night terrors on the PTSD, that cause the PTSD to actually also introduce either a scent or a sound, and then also have that available at nighttime. What this is doing is it's stimulating what's called replay. Yes. So one of the theories about how memory consolidation takes place is that we replay the memory during sleep. And it's that replay which is getting transferred to a different part of the brain, to the cortex. So what we're saying is that if you associate a stimulus with the experience, then you are going to enhance the replay of that event during sleep if you re-expose the individual to the stimulus. Now, in the experiment I told you about with the mice, we are amplifying the fear. But if you instead associate in a human, in a therapeutic situation, you associate the therapeutic experience with the smell, you can then Re reinforce that the benefit of that experience during sleep. Yes, that makes total sense. And that's a very good suggestion for people to actually apply that and yeah. introduce that to their therapy sessions. Yeah. Yeah. PTSD definitely results in disrupted sleep. Now you mentioned night terrors. Night terrors are parasomnias or abnormal events associated with sleep, not necessarily due to PTSD or trauma. And what these are frequently referred to as disorders of arousal. So in other words, the individual with a night terror is making a sudden transition, let's say from REM to wake, but it's not full wake. The brain is not fully awake, and therefore the brain is able to respond to the imagery or the events that are happening in the dream and act them out. So that, that's the nature of a, a night terror as a parasomnia. It's a disorder of arousal. So we think of being asleep or being awake, and there is an in-between. And if that in between, and we all experience it, no one, we may wake up and we're not, don't know exactly where we are. It takes us a second or two to, especially if we're in a new environment, but this disorder of arousal in some individuals gets a more serious problem. It gets extended. So Understood. Yes. And are there, are there modalities that can help mitigate this? I do not know what the therapeutics are 
that are currently used for parasomnias. These are medically treated, they're pharmacologically treated. Not being a physician, I'm not familiar with these, these particular therapies which are being used. And just on an offshoot, because touching upon medical treatments, because currently globally we're dealing with this, and this has also been on my mind with regards to sleep and sleep patterns, is there any evidence that long-haul COVID damages the sleep patterns of some people? Could a messed up circadian rhythm be a symptom of long-haul COVID? Definitely. There's, there's new information coming out about this currently. Just this last week, there was evidence that was published showing loss of particular brain volume, brain structures, brain material with, with COVID. And this could be associated with long-haul COVID. But here's the interesting thing. What long-haul COVID involves is fatigue. We use that term frequently. We use it with association with exercise. We use it association with disease. And we have no idea what it is. We don't know physiologically what fatigue is. There's a very common condition, which is a very serious one. It's probably the largest not understood disease that we have to deal with these days. And that's chronic fatigue syndrome. It's probable that long-haul COVID is very linked, is very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome. And we have no idea. We have no idea what the basic underlying mechanism is. One of the things that's characteristic of chronic fatigue syndrome and also long-haul COVID is non-refreshing sleep. So the individuals are fatigued, but their sleep does not restore them like it does for us. And similarly, there is a different relationship between physical activity and recovery. So non-refreshing sleep is one phenomenon, but inability to recover from physical exertion. So you may do a workout and be fatigued. You'll use that word fatigued and next day you're fine. You do it again. But for someone with chronic fatigue or long haul, they may try to exert themselves with an exercise regime, probably not very severe, but it may take them four or five days to be able to do it again if they ever can. Yeah. We had a symposium in December with the NIH on various ideas of fatigue or concepts of fatigue, and we're about to publish that paper. Yeah. But I can say there is no agreement as to what the underlying mechanism of fatigue is. Where will the paper be published and when? It'll probably be in, in the journal Sleep. Yes. And it's probably going to be three to six months. Excellent. I'll keep an eye out for that. And while there's still no understanding about what exactly is happening there, are there some things that are known that can help, that can be done? For chronic fatigue, the answer is right now, no. Are a number of efforts to, to treat chronic fatigue. There are some drugs which appear to have some benefit, but there is no accepted, proven pharmacological therapy. Some people recover just naturally. And other people just don't recover. They just continue to get worse. Which sounds really pretty awful, especially knowing what all is connected to a lack of good sleep. And with regard to good sleep, of course, the topic of proper sleep hygiene comes up. And most of us know to not use our electronic devices a few hours before we actually want to sleep, maybe not to have a heavy meal, create a pleasant environment, maybe a certain type of sleep routine that gets your mind, your body ready, knows you're going to sleep shortly. Is there anything else the audience should know about how we can improve our quality of sleep? Having a sleep hygiene involves a number of different things that are under our control. So one of the things is have a regular bedtime mm -hmm. and a regular time to get up. Don't 
try to go to sleep at nine o'clock one night and then the next night, 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock. It's better to have a routine time to sleep. And that helps adjust the relationship between your circadian rhythm and your sleep homeostasis, your sleep need. So that's one thing. Another thing, as you said, is don't work right up until the time you're going to bed. And one of the things that's frequently said in, by sleep researchers is the bedroom is for sleep and sex. <laughs> it's not for work. <laughs> so don't be using your computer. The computer use late in the evening has two problems. Number one is it your mind is activated. It's involved in your work. And it's a lot harder to shut it off when you want to sleep. The other thing is your screen is exposing you to blue light mm -hmm. and predominantly blue light. And it's that blue light, which phase delays your circadian rhythm, it makes it harder to go to sleep. <laughs> and the other thing is that if you are uh, active late and you have bright light on, that's also going to affect your melatonin rhythm. Bright light suppresses melatonin production. Now, there's a lot of misinformation about the benefit of melatonin. It's questionable whether is, there is any major benefit with respect to sleep. Probably the benefit of melatonin is that it helps reset or it helps to adjust your circadian rhythm to real time. Melatonin goes up at the time you normally go to sleep, the time when you're normally exposed to dark, that's when melatonin rises. So if you are jet lagged and you take melatonin about the bedtime, it may have some effect on resetting your clock. It's not a major effect, but some people swear by it. It works like a charm on me. I use it every once. Really? Yes. Yes, yeah, so I have noticed, especially at a higher doses, I, using it, I can just roll through the jet lag and not be affected by it anymore within three days. I'm very curious to learn more about the device, though, that's been developed by the group of students you mentioned. That sounds fantastic, especially if it comes in a shape that's a wearable, like either a mask or, or glasses. glasses yeah. Another possibility is a travel alarm clock. So mm -hmm. it sits by your bedside and it gives you the strobe flashes, <laughs> ah. even though you're asleep. <laughs> yeah. that's also we discovered that phenomenon on mice. <laughs> and then a colleague applied it to humans and finds that it works in humans just as it worked in the mice. And some people might actually prefer it instead of putting something on their face. Yeah. That sounds like a really great idea for a device. Yes. I, I will. And there's many things we can do that we have control over just to ensure that we have an easier time falling asleep and also staying asleep. And then one thing that really is interesting, and I know not that much is known about it either. Uh, it's, for me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of sleep is dreaming. Do we even know what the purpose of dreams are? You explained before, of course, that there's the memory aspect of it, but there's also a lot of talk. We touched upon it briefly before the Freudian, Jungian psychoanalytic theories and methods. But there's also something called the lucid dreaming. So is there a way we can enhance lucid dreaming and use it either for therapeutic or for creative purposes? Dreaming is a complex topic. It had been thought up until fairly recently that we only dream in REM sleep, that REM sleep is actually called dreaming sleep. We know now that We dream in non-REM sleep as well, but the dreams are not as extreme. They're not as vivid. I'm not sure dreaming in REM sleep has a purpose. What happens in REM sleep is that, as I told you, the skeletal muscles are paralyzed. So you can't move, you can't act it out. And also there's inhibition of information coming in. What is happening in the brain during REM sleep is the cortex is reactivated. So in non-REM sleep, the cortex is quiet, it's quiescent. But in REM sleep, it's reactivated. That reactivation in the absence of information coming in is free running. 
It's free association. It's able to put together all sorts of combinations of imagery and ideas that normally you would never have. Sure, that may be a source of inspiration. It, there are many stories of scientists like Thomas Edison who claimed that they made their major discoveries during sleep. That may be true in humans, but it doesn't mean that's the function of dreaming. So I think dreaming is an epiphenomenon. An epiphenomenon is something that just happens because of other things associating in the way they do. So you have the activation of the cortex, you have the inhibition of information coming in, and therefore you have a freewheeling imagination that constitutes bizarre dreams of REM sleep. But the reactivation of memories during non-REM sleep indicates that yes, there's also information being used and being replayed during non-REM sleep. It may not be a vivid hallucination like a dream, but it's processing of information anyway in the brain. So yes, it's, it is likely that the analysis of dreams could give you insight as to the stresses that an individual may be experiencing, because it's likely that they will be featured in the dream. But it doesn't mean that the dream, the purpose of the dream is to resolve those problems. So it may have a, a benefit for diagnostics and analysis of people's psychological state. Now you asked about lucid dreaming. Lucid yeah. dreaming is essentially being able to be aware of the fact that you're dreaming and therefore influence your dream. And I don't know of anybody using it therapeutically. I'm sure there are people that are using it therapeutically, but you could imagine that it would be a way of if you're having, for example, if you're troubled with nightmares, that if you become trained in lucid dreaming, you could shut off the terror. You could react to it in the dream and eliminate it. There's not a lot of research on lucid dreaming. There is some that is going on in Germany these days, but I'm not aware of that it being currently used therapeutically. It may be by some in some clinics. Mm -hmm. There's lots of things still to explore with regard to sleep. And speaking about that, the future of sleep and sleep science, Dr. Heller, do you think we'll ever fully understand the function of sleep? Yeah, we will. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the speed with which new information is coming out these days. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely incredible. And it's likely, as I said, that we will find multiple functions. Like right now, we've been focusing predominantly on the brain, but we know that sleep has effects on the rest of the body too. These may be secondary effects, but yet they are important. So if sleep we're sleep deprived, we have deficits in our bone maintenance. We have deficits in liver function. There are aspects of sleep that are probably totally secondary to the main functions in the brain, but yet they're still important. And Dr. Heller, there's a question, one of the final questions I like to ask each guest, and that's with regard to practices. Are there any practices you could share with us that have positively impacted your life, mentally, physically, or spiritually? And I'm asking this also because I know you're a very eclectic man, not only in the realm of sciences, but you are a beekeeper, you are a winemaker, you have many different interests. So I'm really curious what your answer would be. My answer, and I frequently give this to students when they're frustrated and they say, I don't know what I want to do. I can't decide whether I should major in this or major in that or apply to this school or apply to that school. And my answer always is follow your interests. If something fascinates you, go for it, do it. Uh, and you will do your best work. You will have the most enjoyment if you're doing something that you're interested in. Don't do something because you think that's what you should be doing. And they say, how do I find out what I'm interested in? I say, number one, you've clearly oriented yourself to the sciences. So pick up Scientific American and page through it. Which article do you end up reading? If you are being exposed to new information, what are you likely to Google? That'll tell you where your interests lie. 
try to get away from the mindset that there are certain right ways to develop your your career, your education. You want to explore and you want to experience as much as you can. And then you'll find out what you're good at and what you really enjoy doing. Yes. And what your true calling is. What your true calling is. Yeah. Thank you for that sage advice. And Dr. Heller, for people who would like to connect with you or find you, learn more about you, where can they do? Sure. I'm easily found. hcheller at stanford.edu. Excellent. Thank you so much for this great interview, for enlightening us about so many things. Sleep. I know we've just scratched the surface of your vast, vast knowledge that you have. Your life's been dedicated to so many fascinating topics, including sleep and circadian rhythms. I'm glad I got to ask a few questions to you today. Thank you so much for being my guest. My pleasure. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 